We live in a world in which many podcast hosts don't rewrite their intros, and many of us spend much of our time feeling dulled, stultified, and numb. Much of what we do is compulsory or routine. It stems from the things we like least about ourselves, and often we feel weak. We wait and wait for the end of our shift, for when we can go to bed and end the day, for the weekend or the vacation, for the fix from the bottle, the sugar, or the Netflix. The hum of electronics, the drivel of advertisements and news, and sometimes even the tiresome small talk among those we call our friends, coalesce into a drone that at times seems to drown out any other possibility. And we are told we've arrived at the end of history, the land of the free, and the best of all possible worlds. But some of us feel, deeply and undeniably, that a different life is possible. We know this possibility in our flesh, for we have felt moments of ecstasy, joy, and freedom that are burnt so indelibly into our consciousnesses as to preclude any doubt. We call these moments, and the people who have felt them, the brilliant, because they are glorious to feel and yet dangerous to know, for they beckon us to a lifeway of passion that is not easily slaked by a world that rewards torpor. The Brilliant Podcast is an effort to share those moments and to foster them, to tell stories and explore ideas in a way that stokes our passions and reminds us that a world of ecstasy and mystery lies buried but alive beneath the malaise and drudge that tries daily to convince us that it is all that is, has ever been, or could be. I am your host, Bellamy, joined by co-host Aragorn, and in the background is our sound engineer, Roy Burton. So, uh, this is episode 19 this is of episode the... 19. Of the brilliant podcast. Uh, in terms of uh, sort of a table of contents of what we're going to try to try to do today, we're going to talk a little bit about the, the millennial generation and their sex life. <laughs> we're going to get to the heart of the ideology disagreement that we had uh, about five or six episodes ago. A while back, yeah. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the commentary we got to. What was it? Episode sixteen? Is that yes. seventeen? Whichever one is the one that actually was posted this week, uh, this is this is being January fourteenth. Um, sounds right. Sounds plausible. Um, yeah, sounds plausible. <laughs> and um, finally, we're gonna we're gonna finish up our conversation about the desert. It's the fifteenth, not the fourteenth. Okay. So we have a lot <clears throat> a lot to do. Uh, we're not exactly sure how we're gonna do it, but um, uh, we're gonna start by talking about the millennials. Yeah. bit of a loosey-goosey episode where some of us like to be systematic and rigid and have a clear roadmap, and we are dislodged from that. And uh, that's what I'm experiencing now. So I got curious about the millennial generation because it's something that gets talked about a lot, and I had heard from uh, f- a few different sources over the past few weeks that people were having less sex, millennials were having less sex. And it was interesting to me for a number of reasons. Um, First, because I think there's a, a kind of easy technology critique that can be put there and, and have that be the cause of things. And it also was reminiscent of last year in the news where there was all this talk about people in Japan having much less sex and they're actually having you know, possibly some sort of population crisis and the whole hikikomori phenomenon. And it, it led me to reading all this these different articles about millennials. And so I wanted to just do a a sort of shotgun profile of the millennial and just throw some uh, information out there and see whether there's anything worth discussing. The first is that they're the now the largest part of the American workforce, which was surprising to hmm. me. Well, how what, what age are they defining them? Yeah, the millennials are people who are said to have reached young adulthood in from 2000 to 2010. So it's actually a pretty big spread. It's uh-huh. people between about... 18 and 30. Okay. Yeah. So I would be a millennial being 28 um, at the top end of it, I guess. And of course, what defines it also is that it's the internet generation, the people who grew up with the internet in their lives for the first time. And so 
millennials, largest part of the workforce, they're now very much what companies are looking for when they hire, and there are all these sort of accommodations being made to the millennial lifestyle or habit to the people who were, you know, are often stereotyped as having been groomed by the indulgent boomer parents. And a funny bit about this was uh, an ad company called Wonderman has, in order to accommodate the millennial, has created what they call U-Time, which is a system where managers and employees meet to discuss where the company is going during informal settings like getting manicure pedicures or having dance classes and that this is seen as a way to, to sort of pull these people in and give them the, the pats on the back that they're used to. Mm-hmm. Um, millennials are more socially liberal, but less likely to vote, disinterested in political life, not interested in anything like mass movements, um, about equally likely to identify as liberal or conservative, but very unlikely to vote, um, have extremely low social trust, just 19% say that most people can be trusted, whereas the boomers say 40, 40% of them wow. say most people can be trusted, so it's cutting in half. Uh, change jobs less. Most want to work in entertainment. Known for being heavy cosmetics buyers. Travel less. Leave their houses less. Socialize less. Party less. Commit fewer crimes. Half the marriage rate of parents, the boomers. Lower rate of wanting to have kids. Um, nine out of ten say that they're, they're happy with their economic life and their job goals. Um, more. By the way, calling these the children of the boomers is a little strange to me because boomers at this point are in their sixties. They they can be okay. I mean, boomers is basically from forty five to fifty five is is the ten year gap uh, range of the boomers, and so that means that you know if they're born in forty five, they're uh, sixty yeah. seventy years old. Yeah. So these so are maybe that's wrong. These are the children of Gen X. Okay. I guess, okay, maybe that's wrong. Um, my parents have always self-identified as boomers, so I, maybe that's where my... And they're, they're old, in their 50s? Uh, between 55 and 60. So that's the young eight, the young end the of, young end of, of boomers. Okay. My father, who's a boomer, is um, 65-ish. Okay. Yeah. All right, well, I guess just replace everything I said with boomers with just parents of the millennials. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, more optimistic about the future of the U.S. than their parents. And then, so I don't know if you want to jump on any of that. No, I mean, I mean, mostly, I, you, you know, it's, it's a little hard to have these conversations because a lot of this is about how do you name a generation. Right. Um, for instance, uh, so I'm... And how do you make shitloads of generalizations about them? Right. So I, I accept that I'm, a, I'm of the Gen X because mm-hmm. I'm absolutely the children of the boomers. Yeah. And, and I always saw my peer group and the people around me as being children of the boomers. Okay. Um, and so, uh, and, you know, it, it, it's physically possible for me to have a, a child that's, you know... 25-ish. So so if I had a kid, likely they would be... You could be be my dad. (laughs) Right. So so a lot of this is... uh, So uh, so one of the things that was sort of told about our generation, Gen X, was that we were going to be the first generation to make less than our our parents. Right, right. And so it's strange then to talk about uh, how indulgent our generation would be to our children Uh because... How would we necessarily have the money for right. it? Right. Whereas if if millennials were the children of the boomers, the boomers being older, more that makes sense yeah. that they'd have more more yeah. money. I mean, even if they weren't boomers. Um, so so there's there's some weirdness to me about hearing all these sort of facts and figures and and sort of buying the validity of them. That said, um, when I go home and socialize with my age peer group that I that I grew up with and see experience their children their children sh- shock me because they're so well adjusted and they're so <laughs> they're they're not rebels right and obviously my peer group pretty much to a person you know were rebels right. in their teenage years and um and and they raised not rebels yeah and they and they did nurture them and pay attention to them and stroke them and all the things that sort of are being talked about here about the millennials. Um, and I guess it makes sense. So, I mean, like, so, so there's a lot of aspects of this that sort of resonate with, yeah. with that. But 
I guess the main thing that I don't exactly get is the economics argument. I feel like this is a very weird view into the economics article, especially, you know, given that we are radicals, we always sort of conceive of people of this age range as being the disposable economic units, right? The, pro- the precariat. Right. And, um, and this is talking about them as if they're the desirable unit of corporate machination or something. And that, that feels like a disconnect. Well, that was what part of what was surprising to me is that one, they're the largest part of the workforce and two, that they're highly optimistic about their careers. And, and this is also happening when a third of them live with their parents still. Mm-hmm. And then the whole sex thing, which is what got me curious about it in the first place, um, having less sex, average millennial by middle age is projected to have had sex with eight people compared to 10 or 11 with their parents. Half millennials, half of the millennials have not had any sex in the past year. Less than 7% have sex two to five times per week. And one in three millennials, one in three millennials have never had sex. Yeah, that's shocking. It's, it's very shocking. And so what can be said in general about people who are less social, less pleasure-seeking, less prone to crime, happy about their jobs... Um, not politically engaged, I think it's very easy to construct a profile here from something like an anti-civ perspective that says, this is domestication in action, it's working, people are kind of, they're, they're, you could say they're losing their animality and adjusting to being workers who are more or less content, like to buy shit, want to work in entertainment, happy with their jobs, want to stay with the company that they're at. And I don't know. I mean, there are different ways to go with this. There's a way of saying the mass movement is looks, prospects for the mass movement look bleaker than ever. Um, the idea of, uh, you know, some sort of either withdrawal or break with the existent looks bleaker than ever. And, you know, people are becoming more boring. <laughs> Yeah, it seems like a fair assessment to me. I mean, I actually, in this case, feel like I don't... I, I accept the anti-sive sort of analysis okay. of, of, yeah. of this uh, life. I, I mean, perhaps I just don't have enough information, but I think the internet did it to these people. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, um, and and I think that the that the lie of the internet is, is sort of the, 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 the big shocker here. Um, you know, 20... 30 years ago, people were talking about this information network as being a great liberator of humanity. And yet again, we sort of see how, t- how quickly the circle, you know, it becomes created and, and slowly constrains the life out of whatever liberatory possibility there was in the first place. Yeah. I'm remembering if a few years ago I had a, a shitty job as dishwashing and, but uh, there were some interesting people at my job and I was talking to someone who was middle-aged there and he was very much an internet optimist and I was saying you know, don't you think it's just atomizing people more don't you think it's making people less social and he was saying oh no no that was my generation which was defined by the television and the television was the ultimate atomizing thing because you just sat at home you didn't interact with people and it was just corporations talking to you and you couldn't talk back whereas the internet you can talk to other people you can create content it's going to be totally different. And the empirical evidence is actually that the TV generation was more social and, and more rebellious and more sexually active. And yeah, and yeah, it's just the opposite. I mean, this, this is actually a funny, just a sidebar into one of our uh, uh, typical topics, which would be a news yeah. or anarchistnews.org. Um, this is an interesting way in which um, anarchist news demonstrates something that's happened in general on the internet, which is that people tend, nowadays people prefer to only have conversations in a silo with people who are going to agree with them. Right. And anarchist news is seen as a, a hostile anarchist activity because it's a room where people do not agree with each other's assumptions. Right. right. And and it's one of the biggest criticisms that people make of anarchist news, and they basically make the claim that it's counter-revolutionary for anarchist news to exist because it's a demonstration that anarchists don't agree with each other. 
mm-hmm. which I think is a fa- is a fascinating conclusion that instead Facebook is being used far more for these sort of conversations that used to happen on Anarchist News, where you're only having a conversation with your basically with, your your friendship. Say, group. Your project is great. Mm-hmm. You're awesome. Your opinions are right. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas the news definitely tends to the opposite. It tends towards the opposite. Yes. <clears throat> okay. Well, let's move on. Okay. Ideology. Sure. So we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about one of those weighty words, ideology, and the reason I wanted to talk about this, as Aragorn uh, hinted at earlier, was uh, several episodes when we were talking about Dunbar's number, which was something that I brought up and that Aragorn was less enchanted with, and I was trying to describe why I thought that was a useful part of a perspective, and I was framing things in terms of, well, I like to look, I like to arrive at my conclusions by sort of stepping into a lot of different perspectives that make different assumptions and then stepping back from them and seeing if they all point in the same direction and Aragorn accused me of the line was something like wrapping my words in an ideological apparatus and so I wanted to talk about what ideology was and and whether what I was doing was in fact that, and whether it is possible, as some people say and some disagree, to be non-ideological in one's analysis. Mm-hmm. Okay. So ideology, of course, is usually pejorative, and I think it should be, but it's usually poorly defined, like most of the pejoratives that anarchists like to use, and so I'm going to rankle you by trying to start with a definition, and that definition will be theory that makes assumptions or presupposes things that it does not acknowledge or that it obscures. I absolutely reject that uh, definition. Okay, so then what... Uh, go ahead. No, I, I'm just... You okay. can continue working with it. bad faith ways of arguing where you imply why is that it bad you faith? Because you're saying that you disagree before I even get started and that not but explaining no, why. But no, you got started... Right. You already got started and then you began your thing and I just, just want to make it clear mm-hmm. that that, you, you, that basically... Dispersions. <laughs> So let's call it, for now, a theory that makes assumptions or presuppositions that doesn't acknowledge and then ends up arriving at conclusions that, that therefore seem to be, to be based on simply what is the real and the evident and the true because those assumptions are hidden. And just, just to give you a counter-definition, sure. and uh, I mean, I absolutely hate playing this sort of game, okay. but, but I think the conceptual difference is important. I don't think that the words, because the words are going to be very similar, but there's a conceptual difference that I want to say. So, theory is when you have ideas, ideology is when ideas have you. Yeah, sure. I like that one. I'm just saying, you keep your definition and, and, and try to stay consistent with it, mm-hmm. but that's that's what my definition is, and I'll try to stay consistent with it. So, sure. Onward. And I don't think that those definitions are at odds with each other, because I would say the reason, and I think that's it's like a useful shorthand slogan way of talking about it because so I agree with the um, with the shorthand uh, th- theories when you have ideas and ideologies when your ideas have you because I think and I think it accords with what I'm saying because the the ideological component is that you're not acknowledging your assumptions and so w- we have to in order to take a perspective on things my belief is we have to make certain assumptions about what's going on. Um, but as long as we recognize them as assumptions, then we realize that our conclusions are tentative or on a certain field of doubt or not touching the real and being absolutely true. But ideology is when you hide those assumptions to yourself and then believe absolutely in your conclusions and therefore your ideas have you. Okay. 
Okay. And so, um, where do I want to go with this? So what I was trying to say a few weeks ago was in the context of you know, why do I want something like the Bolo Bolo world or why do I want something like the you know permaculture vision of you know, many small horticultural foraging communities? Why do I want face-to-face community? And what I was trying to say was, well, let me start with the intuitive perspective that just comes from my gut feelings of living with, in the world. So I'm going to believe in my intuitions, that's my assumption, and then say, I know from personal experience that I am happiest and healthiest when I have face-to-face community and people know each other's life stories and people interact on a daily basis and there's trust and compassion built. So that's when I believe in my intuitions. Let me back up from that for a moment and then say, well, what if we take the empirical findings of anthropology as true? What if we assume that? Well, then I can look at what this research that Dunbar's doing and say, okay, it makes sense that human psychology works in this way where we can have a certain number of people that we can keep track of and have sort of daily monkey grooming interactions with each other. And, you know, we're monkeys and we see how other monkeys are doing these things. And, you know, it, that all makes sense to me. But I'm not going to believe in that absolutely and completely. I'm recognizing that I'm making an assumption that anthropology, anthropological findings are true. Well, let me back up from that and, and ste- step away from both those sets of assumptions. Well, let me look at my egoist analysis that says when we reify in our thinking, we create these self-enslaving concepts and that those are toxic. And if we have mass society where we have to live with the values of strangers, where we have to live in these uh, giant societies that make no sense and treat a bunch of human beings as abstractions, that's going to be toxic. That's going to be self-enslaving. I don't want that. And in order to keep specters and reifications out of my life, I have to live on the small level. Then let me back up from that. And I could, you know, go on and on. And that's what I was trying to say is the way that I feel it's possible to be non-ideological as an anarchist is to take lots of different perspectives, treat each of them as possibly true, treat none of them as absolutely true. Yeah, that's, I, I think that's very interesting. And I think that a lot of people would feel very sympathetic to that to that orientation. I mean, the, the one thing that you're doing that um, is different than me okay. is, is uh, I guess I'd say that, like, you're clamoring for truth, even if mm. all of the different ways in which you're doing that clamoring, you're not, you're not saying any of the different ways are truth. Uh-huh. And you're not making truth claims. I'm, um, but there's something in that in that clamoring. There's something that you're desperately hungry for that that I feel here, and that you know you're basically gave at least five different categories of ways in which you try to sort of like in the dark looking for truth, um, and you know you're, you're saying the correct non ideological statements about all of those all that all of those different clamorings, and you know if you weren't in the room, I would say I experienced that person as. Uh, doing a lot of shuffling about and and trying to 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 make a story out of that, um, uh, and I guess where I'm at that's a that's a really different place is I've done very similar clamorings in uh, different because of course I I've never been particularly um, yeah somewhat different but but not not entirely and. Um, where I've landed is that I, I strongly feel that you can't get there from here. Oh, so... So, in other words, the problem isn't that any of those claims are not true or that they are true, but is that there's something in the... Like, you know, we can talk talk, talk a little bit about how each of these stories plays out. So obviously, you know, we, we've seen hippies go back to land and, and yeah. we've seen the ways in which that succeeded and mostly yeah. failed. You know, we see what happens when people take anthropology uh, maybe more seriously than it was intended and how that succeeds and fails. Um, you know, we see people who, who believe strongly in, in, in their intuition 
and you know let's say Jim Jones would be an example of a strong intuition sure. argument sure, sure, sure. Um, uh, and you know we can go down the line about rationality and and communities that are built on rationality as their basis and, and sort of a set of abstract values like egoism uh, we can talk about em empiricism and how empiricism is and is not you know uh -huh. and and um, and I guess like to the extent to which I've moved into this role as as sort of like a um, like I want to hear people's stories and I want to hear people's experimentations even even if I absolutely feel like I know the ending before the story even begins because I, I sort of believe in that activity of the story but that's not where I'm at and this is sort of this weird age experience thing where I'm not saying that like like that the clamoring is, is wrong it's not wrong but it's not where, like, th this is one of the reasons why, one of the places where I find a lot of the, um, when people judge our conversations, um, it's very bizarre to, to see what, what it is that they're judging because, you know, it's, it's, it's as if they have no idea who, like, what, what our work is or, you know, what it is that we're doing when we're not talking on a microphone. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, the fact that you're doing this clamoring, that's a central part of who it is that you are at this point in your life. Totally. In five years, you might be a really different person. You might have found some answers in some of these different types of clamoring, and you might have come again, come around and strongly disagree with some of this, the way in which this clamoring goes. But my declaration of you is, like, you know, the, it, I wasn't calling you ideological. I was saying that you were performing an ideological function. Mm -hmm. Not and, very sensitive and take those things to heart. No, sure, sure, but <laughs> but but the but the point is is that is that this that what I was talking about was was you are earnestly doing that the clamoring about, and that's what I was calling it, perhaps unfairly, but that's what I was calling it. Whereas I don't think that I'm not ideological. I I do think that it's a goal. And it's my goal, and and I've suffered for it in in the sense that a lot of people who I consider to be authentic friends or or people who I'd like to work with will not work with me and do not want to work with me because they basically feel as though I'm I'm not a believer in the things that they're a believer in. Right. Yeah, sure. Because I'm I'm basically aloof to to their values and and especially how they present their values, and that's the sacrifice I make so that I, to, so. I, I, I do not accuse myself of being, being ideological, but the consequence of it is that I seem aloof from human values and, and desires and orientations and efforts. And so. Yeah, I think without um, without undermining what I was saying before, because mm -hmm. I, I do, that is where totally where I'm at, I can see where you're coming from. And I do think, of course, some of that comes from the fact that when I was younger um, and before I became exposed to radical ideas and started having those radical thoughts, absolutely where I thought I was going in my life was to become a scientist. And so I think there is maybe some sort of resi residual love of feeling right, of mm -hmm. feeling mm -hmm. correct, and that the way that I've approached this, you know, it, this more or less egoist-informed attempt to be non-ideological is, is is still in this sort of systematic way of if I take steps one, two, three, then I'm right. And How uh, how far into science did you get? Well, I, I had a bachelor's in biology. Okay. Yeah. And then by the two years before that was completed, I realized I that was not where I wanted to go because I was going to just be a weird kind of intellectual slave. And that was not what I wanted to do with my life. And, um, yeah, I think the, the one other thing I wanted to say about this was uh, another reason I wanted to talk about ideology on the show was I, several months ago, I read The Invisible Committees to Our Friends and read it twice and tried to in, engage with it <laughs> in a serious way. And one of the, there were things I liked about it and didn't like about it, and I'm not trying to get into that in a wholesale way. But one of the things that was shocking to me was uh, there was a point 
about halfway through where they said ideology is no longer important for mm-hmm. structures of domination. And that was shocking to me. Um, shocking to me on a, on a number of levels. First, because when politicians get on stage, which I think certainly in the American t- context is still something that a large part of the population takes seriously, almost all they do, besides um, throwing a bunch of decontextualized st- statistics at people, is invoke ideologies, invoke American exceptionalism, invoke the middle class, which you know, in a lot of ways can be said not really to exist, is invoke progressivism or a return to a golden age of America or the American dream. And all of that to me is ideology, is motivating ideology, and, and I think it works. Well, I think the thesis that they're working off of, uh, have you seen many of the Adam Curtis videos? No, just the one that I watched with you, the one that was... Uh, About Reich? Yes. So they do a series, um, and they t- he talks about this in several of the series, but definitely in um, the one on 9-11 and I think <laughs> The Trap. But basically, he, he goes into great detail about how statisticians became more and more powerful within the context, especially of the Clinton and the Blair administration. Okay. And so much so that um, that basically a lot of the governance that happened in the late 90s, early 2000s was, was uh, functional governance rather than ideological governance. And, and I believe that the Invisible Committee is taking that set of... Very seriously. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's really compelling argumentation. Okay. Um, and a lot of what you're talking about in the context of American politics is like, you know how um, the Republican Party, it's often said that the, that the person who's going to win the nomination isn't necessarily the best candidate for for the general election because the people who are actually paying attention on the primary level are a very different audience than, than the people who vote for right, president. Right, it's the more rabid. It's, it's yeah. the more rabid. And so, so a lot of what you're accusing as being ideological, which of course is true, is to appeal to a base that's very different than the base than how they would win the election and, and it's yeah. so it's sort of like a series of shell games and and yeah. we can sort of evaluate which shell games are being played at which time um yeah and one of the things that i will still agree with about chomsky is he talks often about how the republican party is in a weird position because they their policies have no pretense of actually serving their base yeah. and so they have to motivate all this weird yeah. uh, pathos to actually get the vote out right absolutely yeah. um, and and you know and, and I want to interrogate you know that I've been saying this is a sort of pithy one-liner for about 10 years and I haven't gone that far down down this rabbit hole but this idea that I feel very strongly about but I but I'm not exactly sure why that we can't get there from here sure part of I, I just want to sort of say that, like, I, part of my motivation for for saying that is to is to start a conversation about um, sort of strategic vision and to and to compare and contrast strategic vision to what in fact actually happens. So, for instance, I think that if we're going to talk about street protests in Oakland, we should talk about the rise of Mayor Li, uh, Libby or Labby Libby Schaff and talk about basically how Oakland has changed in a way that is entirely orthogonal to what quote unquote street tactics should should evolve or should involve and that any sort of honest conversation about that has that conversation about the differing impulses and and the way in which sort of the leftist or even Leninist imagination of revolution is so different than what's happened and sort of falls apart even in a post-60s analysis, but we're at least one more analysis past the post-60s analysis. <clears throat> and yet, you know, we find ourselves trapped as anarchists in, in talking about motivating people f- from a mass movement type perspective that's long since been obsolete. Yeah, and, and also relevant to that point, I think, is that Libby Chef absolutely ran on a police security platform that yeah. was the platform and that was popular. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so when you say can't, just to flesh it out a little bit, mm-hmm. when you say can't get uh, to there from here, you're talking not only about the, if I'm understanding you, not only about that nihilist provocation that revolution is or may be impossible, but also that that's the, maybe even the whole paradigm of thinking that we're in now 
is so conditioned and so cut off from what a free world l would look like that we can't even really speculate about that? Would sure. that be part of it? Okay. But, but I, I mean, I, I'm willing to sort of meet leftists where they're at and, and sort of say, like, if you want social change, if you want a social movement, if you are interested in the politics you, that you say that you're interested for, you know, what does that look like? And, and if we actually measure what it looks like compared to what's happening how far are we willing to recognize that we've absolutely failed? And and this is one of the things that I just continues to buckle my mind. It, perhaps it is true that a nihilist perspective and, and the perspective that that uh, winning is impossible, perhaps that's wrong. I'm absolutely willing to accept that that's okay. true. Yeah. But that's a way of being non-ideological. <laughs> but but if if I'm willing to you know sort of meet someone halfway, are they willing to sort of look at their activity and recognize that their activity? didn't accomplish any of the goals in mind. And this is one of the reasons why, and I've mentioned this before um, in our conversations, that I really like the idea of the Freakonomics pot. Um, right. The Freakonomics people, you know, they're talking about economics, which I mostly have no interest in, but mostly they're talking about social conditions and social phenomena and how economics has this very strange and oftentimes the opposite role that what you, what, of what you expect it to have. So one of the big things is uh, they talk about New York City, and we, sh we should actually, uh, I should look this up, and we should talk about it in more detail in a different podcast, but um, this idea that the crime rate, the the broken windows theory of Giuliani's was absolutely wrong, right, and, that, right. and that it was basically, so there was some demographic phenomena that actually explained most of the changes in, in both. Because it was an, a generational change, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyways, we, we can go into that another time, but, but my point is, is that it feels like, you know, that what is called a nihilist critique is really just a critique of leftist orthodoxy, and and again, you know, we, we find ourselves in the in these in the sort of struggleismo arguments that are that are happening online, just re repeating. I, I mean, I just feel like people are just repeating the same old sort of canards that have almost no basis in in empirical reality. <laughs> well, it's usually just um, well, of course, it's not going to work if you keep shit talking and not believing and not engaging. Yeah. Okay, let's move on. Okay, so the latest episode of our podcast, which um, we posted this last week, um, so we're talking in episode 19, but I think it's it's 17 that we just put up? I think so. Um, so we're a couple episodes behind, so there's, yeah, some... some some issues there, but, but, um, this one has been the, the most interesting or not the most interesting, but it's, it's provoked the most direct hostility towards us as, uh, uh, as broadcasters. And, um, uh, I guess the, the main thing I would like to say is I think that it, that it is really exciting that there's now a half dozen solid podcasts that are coming out in the anarchist space every week. I think that that's fantastic. I think that, that basically this is the, behavior that should be encouraged, that there should be six very different uh, opinions uh, <clears throat> happening. What I don't understand is why having a preference for one of those half dozens mean you, you basically have to devote a lot of energy to talking shit about any of the others. And in, and in particular, it seems like this podcast has the most amount of like political uh, objection that tries to pretend like it's something else or, or whatever. Like, in other words, people disagree with what it is that we're talking about, and rather than engaging on any level with their disagreement, they just basically call us names and, and sort of, I guess they think that their work is done. So, so at this point, you know, I, I more or less am feeling like a lot of that content is just, it's just irrelevant feedback. 
It's not feedback. It's just it's just basically people acting as though radical politics is a popularity contest and that by repeating themselves over and over again, they're somehow going to win this popularity contest. And if this isn't the sort of high school-esque behavior that, that chases people away from the radical milieu in droves, I don't know what is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that feedback could be translated as fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. And besides, um, besides what you were saying about there being a diversity of opinion, which I think is great. And, um, and to me, the purpose of the podcast in general, not just my own podcasts that I've done, but podcasting in general is to create space for lots of conversations, which is why I'm always interested in reading listener feedback. That's, that's thoughtful in good faith. Um, and we didn't get much this week. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, just, I, I feel like the, the mere act of, talking into the sort of internet void encourages some people to talk back and I think that's great. And so besides just having the diversity of opinion, I also think one of the nice things about the consistent anarchist podcasts that are out there is that they all have a sort of different structure. So Anarchy Radio often is a survey of current events and what's going on and um, with our podcast, you know, we're talking often about uh, things that have been written or just a sort of broader assessments of what what the prospects of anarchism are in the world and then the final straw is a lot of is very interview focused so it's a, a platform for people to come on and talk about things and i don't know why that's not a desirable thing yeah. to have to have a diversity of structures no it's it's sad for me because it i think that what's what i'd like to propose and and um, we're going to have to have a change of format in the not-so-distant future anyways because Bellamy is going to be leaving town. And when that happens, my real hope is is to sort of force the conversation by having more uh, uh, hosts. Mm-hmm. And uh, hopefully those hosts will bring different energies and, and that will sort of increase uh, what the Brilliant is doing in terms of at least my own self-criticism, which is sort of that... that it's not that our conversation has reached its its limit, but uh, in terms of the audience we're trying to reach, perhaps sure. we have. Yeah, yeah. And I, the current prospect, just to be clear, is that I will continue to be on the show once a month. Sure, yeah. once or twice, depending on how it works out. Sure. I mean, I I even like the idea of us trying to figure out how to get three people going in here at a time. Yeah, mm-hmm. like for you know, perhaps yeah. someone in that we are more or less interviewing or in active conversation with. Um, I, you know, I've gotten the chance to listen to a lot more podcasts and um, I'm not going to mention the specific podcast, but there's definitely one that has more of like, you know, there are two people primarily talking, but definitely a third who's sort of in the a mix. rotating third. Yeah. That's cool. And uh, I like that. Yeah. Um. Well, we can move on. Okay. So the um, uh, so for the for the last time, for the third time, we're gonna revisit desert. And there were there were some sort of controversial uh, points that Bellamy was bringing up at the at the end of uh, uh, the, a podcast you haven't heard yet, um, and I sort of stood mute. Um, it, it was actually it was the ultimate Aragorn snub because I I made a number of points that I was inviting him to engage with, and he looked at me and then he stopped the recording. <laughs> and I felt like that's that said everything I need, needed to say, but uh, but perhaps not. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting to think about how to frame this, but, but I guess one framing would be that in the article, green nihilism or cosmic pessimism, pessimism, uh, Alejandro makes this comment. The subcultures exist as pockets of resistance, of course, but survival in them is indelibly tied to reproducing the anarchist as persona, as identity as an answer to the question of what life is or is for. 
And I kind of don't see that. I don't buy it. Um, so I guess this is this is a time to sort of slow down and speed up at the same time. But I've sort of been at a loss of, of, about the past five years, and, and this somewhat mirrors um, uh, Civil War by Takoon. There's this there's this concept which I think is a very interesting concept which is sort of to abandon the milieu, and and the the, the point is, and this is this point has been an active point, um, I mean ever since I was a punk rock kid, that basically says as long as an anarchist is a scary, you know mohawked, leather jacket wearing freak, um, you're never going to get the quote unquote real person to 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 join. <laughs> Wherever that person is, and 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 basically, what happened as anarchism became more popular in certain uh, sec- sectors of the socio-economic world that we live in, um, more types of people came to anarchism, and as they came, many of them had very similar demographics to each other. So, similar to the punk rock kids of my generation, you know, the next huge wave of kids that came in through in the anti-globe generation were college-aged, privileged kids. And um, I would say that happened again with Occupy. Right. And then in Occupy, I would say perhaps in different towns it had different phenomena. But but, um, I I noticed a a big phalanx of kids who were millennial kids who were not necessarily affluent. But but the point is, is that uh, waves of people have entered the anarchist space. (coughs) And um, uh, and while. And so all of those people together are, are described as being the milieu and, and sort of categorically uh, rejected. But that to me feels like a very partial sort of a statement. Like, like in other words, the social conditions that make a toxic environment that people want to, to run away from, those social conditions are more or less like they're shared social conditions. And... Um, so I think a lot of people put at the door of those of of the milieu the, the sort of the high school politics. Yeah, totally. You know, one of the I, I've definitely been guilty of saying that as well. Yeah, that that one of the most common criticisms of the milieu is that it it, it reflects the the high school environment that most of us were rebelling against when we were that age, and which mo- all of us d- disdain. And that to me doesn't feel. I mean, like per, yes, that is a problem. I'm not denying that. But there are so many things that, like, are, I mean, to put it in your words, are normal monkey behavior (laughs) that I think basically don't look that different from, like, high school bullshit. And so maybe there's this unreasonable onus being put on the milieu that it should be better than human. I don't don't want to get to conclusion yet. Okay. I want to make a couple more uh, sort of data points. Um, the, the big data point for me is this, is this thing that happened come the anti-globe period, which was when people like prior to the anti-globe period, the gender dynamic within radical circles, within anarchist circles was way, way, uh, more male than female, very high percentage of male. And so the dating pool of people... (laughs) Like in general, you did not date anarchists because they weren't available to date in heterosexual in the heterosexual sense of the word, and um, uh, and so in the anti globe period, parity came a lot closer to being created, and and I experienced a lot more higher percentage of of people that I knew to be dating within the anarchist space. And so this created a situation that I think is very different than a high school situation, which is basically the combination of polyamory, cl- ne- closer to gender parity, meant that um, there was always polydrama happening within anarchist circles, a polydrama of people who you cared for everyone involved. Yeah. And so when relationships ended, when things happened, it, in- it impacted everybody else, everybody's life. In, in a geographical area. And, um, but, and couple that with the fact that people sort of came of age together 
um, uh, be, you know, because of because of people coming in and floods and and during that same time. And for me, I see as big of an issue with the high school dynamics that people accuse the milieu of. I actually see a similar issue where what would happen would be that people would come into this space, have these exciting poly relationships, lots and lots of drama. And when things started to end and when the sort of amusement of, of all of this uh, uh, came to an end, people, in my uh, perspective, conflated the radical politics that introduced them to all this polydrama and all the rest, they conflated the polydrama with the immediate social people, with their friends. In other words, the friendship circles and the political circles began to overlap. And partially this has been long since justified under the umbrella of the personal with the political. Right. But it's meant that, that people could not separate the politics from from maybe people who disappointed or upset them. And so by and large, the milieu is populated with sort of the baggage of all of these disappointing uh, results that basically are very normal human results, which is sort of the failure of polyamory, the failure of a particular set of friends. We all change friendship groups through our, our entire life. And and so for me, this has always been the thing that I, I, I feel like is, is very poorly analyzed as being the failure of anarchism being really the failure of anarchism to raise children the right way with with all the complicated new sets of rules that they teach children at the same time. And and so it's not just a matter of blaming anarchism for the for social problems. It's it's um it's basically sort of conflating what it means to become a sort of adult and blaming anarchism for not turning you into an adult successfully. Okay. Yeah, so just to reflect to make sure I'm understanding the point, mm-hmm. do you think what what I was saying before that it's unreasonable to expect anarchism as understood as a set of of people in this case to be something more than what people in general do. And so the criticism of the milieu is a sort of misplaced criticism of just how sometimes groups of people disappoint you. And it's nothing specific to the politics. It's nothing specific to the lifestyle, unless you want to equate polyamory with an anarchism or something like that, which I wouldn't want to. And so the, the criticism of the milieu is a kind of empty criticism that says, sometimes people piss me off. I, or is that, is that too ungenerous? Or I think that, it's, I think that what you're saying, it's, it's too constrained. Okay. Um, I basically, like, if we're going to talk about something called anarchism, we would talk about it having some structure. But a lot of what anarchism seems to teach a lot of people is to is to really despise a structured anarchism. So, like, one thing I would I would love to say would be that that you know, anarchism um, looks like a set of mentors who teach you a certain type who teach you certain lessons, and as you learn those lessons, you find new mentors. But that's not what happens at all. By and large, what happens is any time someone rears their head as a mentor, you slap them immediately. And, uh, and by and large, the only people that ex-anarchists tend to like are the distant, aloof figures um, who they never really got access to. And so, there, so there's something in here about um, that anarchism has by and large found itself in a place where it can't teach the lessons that it needs to teach to make people survive it. Mm. Um, so, so I guess I, I, what I'm really getting at is that the sort of assertions that people make about how shitty the milieu are, are over, are very simplistic. And what I've really seen, and, and I've seen this time and time again, is that when people leave the milieu, they either, enter a social morass sort of emptiness and that that looks like a return to bar culture or, or right. whatever or they emulate the exact same things that, that are problematic in the anarchist milieu in a new milieu that's not necessarily anarchist right yeah 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 I mean I'm reminded of um, a mutual friend of ours who said uh, who is critical of the milieu but he said uh Honestly, it's 
all the things that all the bad things you can say about the anarchist milieu are the same things you can say about skateboarding culture or about academic culture or about any subculture and that you have the same things of of sort of affection and attention scarcity that motivates all different sorts of grandstanding and denunciation um, and that there's nothing peculiar to anarchism I think that's fair I do wonder um, just to return to the, the point from which we wandered this assertion by Alejandro that a part of the subculture is an existential draw it, it makes you feel like you're someone that your life has meaning that you do something I think it's an argument could be made that that is what drew me to anarchism in that mm -hmm. I was feeling a bleakness, a, a despair at the world, uh, alienated from the culture, thinking, you know, what, what the fuck is there to do um, with a life in a world like this? And, and especially when I was younger, in my early 20s, it was meaningful to me to adopt that identity as I think I said in the previous episode to have this sort of adversarial relationship with the world and the things I didn't like in it and I think what Alejandro's saying is maybe quite fair or at least it has been in my life but I'm not sure on the face of it that's such an awful thing to say it's meaningful for me to have an advers adversarial relationship with the world yeah I, I mean I I'll even go a little further here. I really appreciate the the civil war criticism of of the milieu. I think that it's an attack on, it's an attack from a from a sort of new and exciting direction. So on that level, I think that that the premise of it is is really cool. Um, the identity formation thing that he's referring to is absolutely how I came into into this space also, and and so. Um, uh, so to that to to that extent, I I think that there's okay, there, it's a fair criticism, but I feel like there's something else to say here that we're not saying yet, and that's that's the part that I'm getting at. In other words, like my perspective on some of these topics has changed a lot as I as I've aged, mm. and and as the things that I need are so much less. Like like I craved for people's acceptance and and. Um, I craved that attention 20 years ago in a way that I just do not crave it at all anymore. I don't. Um, you know, a new anarchist stranger, I don't need them to uh, enjoy me as much as I enjoy myself. And and uh, um, and I'm totally open to the fact that, like, I'm, I am very, like, the anarchism isn't enough. But this is sort of like why I, I almost despair of sending this out to the internet, um, this podcast, because basically I want to talk to the people who want to have the conversation I would like to have. The people who are just going to say, Aragorn's defending the milieu are kind of missing the point. I feel as though the milieu is a, is a phenomenon that we can describe and talk about and that there is no defense of it because people are not going to stop associating with each other to the extent to which they will i actually think that a lot of the civil war criticisms of the anarchist milieu point exactly in the direction that the millennial conversation we had earlier point to in other words what we're really talking about is is a way to take subculture which you know forgetting that term but counterculture can be broken up and it, it's much smaller than society as a whole and as it breaks itself up, you, you basically see less and less sort of connections between radicals and each other. And if you don't value those things, that's that's fine enough. But please leave in silence. There's an, there's an argument that the Civil War criticism of the anarchist milieu is part of why anarchism is in such steep decline. Mm. And then what does it look like except people getting more into their jobs? And, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's fucking depressing when you put it that way. <laughs> Next week we should talk about something more happy. Something happy. Okay. Yeah, we'll do that. Thank you for listening to The Brilliant. As always, you can email us at thebrilliant at thebrilliant.org and we hope to hear from you and, and uh, 
good faith, well-constructed emails will be read. Absolutely. <laughs>